Hello and welcome to the first edition of the Berlin Policy Journal podcast. I'm Henning Hoff, Executive Editor. The Berlin Policy Journal is a digital magazine on European affairs, edited in Germany's capital and published by the German Council on Foreign Relations, or DGAP. It's a sister publication of Internationale Politik, Germany's leading foreign affairs magazine. With the Berlin Policy Journal, we take a closer look at what moves and shapes the European continent politically, economically and culturally, and Germany in particular. We report on the inner workings of the European Union as well as the EU's changing place in the world, and we bring European voices into debates on international affairs. In our new monthly podcast, we take deeper dives into the topics that occupy us, offer looks behind the scenes of European politics and host lively discussions. In the current September-October issue of the Berlin Policy Journal, we focus on the long shadow, the 30 years that have passed since the fall of the Berlin Wall. Often forgotten is that the peaceful revolutions in what we used to call the Communist Eastern Bloc or Ostblock were already in full swing before that date. After years of protests, Poland held free elections in June 1989. They returned the opposition trade union movement Solidarność as the strongest political force. Three weeks later, the Austrian and Hungarian foreign ministers met near the Hungarian city of Sopron and symbolically cut through barbed wire at the common frontier. When a pan-European peace picnic was held there a month later, close to 700 East Germans took their chances and escaped. The Iron Curtain had a tear. It would soon be torn down. On November 9, 1989, the Berlin Wall fell. It was brought down by peaceful mass protests and East Berliners demanding their right to travel. On December 29, dissident Václav Havel became president of Czechoslovakia, rounding off a miraculous year in European history. Today, Central and Eastern Europe once again appear far too often as a bloc. Their image is tarnished by national politics, populism and corruption. But the region deserves a more nuanced look. There has been considerable progress, not least economically. And what's often forgotten, Western countries have also benefited economically from the post-1989 EU enlargement. But a real coming together of the Western and Eastern parts of the continent has not happened. To discuss all this, we turned to Milan Nitsch, who heads the Central and Eastern European, Russian and Central Asian program at the German Council on Foreign Relations, and Annabel Chapman, the Economist's Warsaw correspondent. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. I wanted to ask with a, with a little bit of personal question. Can you still remember where you were when the war came down in November 1989? I remember I was at a square in my hometown of Bratislava, Slovakia, where there were protests. And the important date in that month for us was not the fall of Berlin Wall, but in our own drama in at the time, Czechoslovakia, 17th of November, when the student uh, demonstration in Prague was put down with violence and then huge protests later on, not knowing what will follow, whether there will be a China-style crackdown. And we didn't realize how things are related in the whole region, that the dominoes are falling. Mm. But the year ended with um, Václav Havel being elected as president. It was history happening at such a speed that uh, I don't think I will, I will go through anything similar in my life. Where were you, Annabelle? My answer is simple. I wasn't born yet. All right. <laughs> so I missed this momentous event. You both have contributed to our latest issue, which is called The Long Shadow, where we are focusing on the 30 years that have passed since the war came down in the Iron Curtain as well. 
and Western and Eastern Europe being reunited. Um, Milan, you're writing about this sort of double anniversary. We, we are celebrating 30 years after the fall of the Iron Curtain and 15 years after the EU Eastern enlargement. Great hopes were attached with both. Have they been fulfilled? Partly, definitely, yes. From a longer-term perspective and from the statistical point of view, this region and countries like Poland, Czech Republic, Hungary, Slovakia, they have their best period in their recent modern history where the gap behind the Western European living standards or uh, GDP per capita are they're closing on. But people don't have historical perspectives. Now it's difficult to remember and see your life in perspective of even five years. Mm -hmm. So I think what you feel there on the street is rather resentment, failed expectations because the expectations were too high. And from the standpoint of the 90s and the wild capitalism without laws or, or, or a strong state, this is a big success. But from the point of what people expected, this is uh, far too low. Um, they thought that their salaries would be better, that they would be much more advanced as countries, societies, economies than they are now. Annabel, you, you live in, in Warsaw. And in our, our latest issue, you're writing about the two narratives about 1989, which have developed in, in Poland in particular. Could you explain what they are and sort of how will they play into the uh, upcoming elections in Poland in this fall? Both of the two main parties in Poland at the moment, the right-wing Law and Justice Party and the centrist Civic Platform Opposition Party, were on the same side in the fall of communism. So both of them were anti-communist and um, have their roots in the solidarity trade union movement that was involved in the peaceful fall of communism in Poland. But nowadays, they are on opposite sides, you can say, and they are dominating the political debate in Poland. The disagreement is over the legacy of 1989. Now, the narrative for the past 30 years that is associated with the Polish center is that communism collapsed peacefully, and since then, Poland has been a great success. Continued economic growth, joining the European Union in 2004, joining NATO, but this has been challenged by the Law and Justice Party, which um, says that the revolution was actually stolen by former communists and crooks, and that only now Poland is becoming a prosperous, good place to live. They are sort of trying to take credit for Poland's success. And this debate has dominated the past anniversary year but um, given its politicization, it really is as much about the future as it is about the past. Mm. If I may um, add something, the new phenomenon in this region is the emergence of uh, smaller countries, new states, uh, like my own, Slovakia, Slovenia, the Baltic countries. They had only a very short period of independence in their past. What happened 30 years ago, and then the entry to the EU, really coined their new identities as independent states. Therefore, from perspectives of the smaller countries uh, who don't have uh, long national histories, Poland, to go back to, I think uh, this is viewed differently. This is, uh, this is a period when they prove to themselves that they can survive and they can be on, uh, uh, behind the European table as, um, and they are proud citizens of the EU. I would also add that what we're seeing now in Poland is a bit of a backlash because for many years 
The aim was to become a member of the European Union and catch up with Western European countries such as Germany or France. And now the Polish government, the, the Law and Justice Party, is saying, well, we don't actually want to be like those Western European countries, except materially. We want to do things our own way and nobody is going to tell us what to do with our courts or our press. Hmm. It's really a sort of nativism that we're seeing in Poland and also in Hungary. Yeah, and you can even say that it's a backlash from the countryside rather than the cities. It's a backlash of traditional environment that has seen a modernization on a too rapid scale. Too many changes and a feeling of lack of control. And therefore migration that, oh, even our borders are now not secured and we will lose the control of our own I don't know, states or societies that is then being explored by populist politicians who don't have a new policies to offer for uh, societies that are now dealing with a demographic decline or the end of certain economic model, but they want to stay in power. Mm. Milan, you made the point that there are six key issues um, for the future development of Central and Eastern Europe and also with its, its relations with the West, Western part of the continent. Uh, what is the most important, you think? I think we are at the juncture of facing a technological change and climate change and uh, complete disruptions in auto industry with uh, electromobility and so on, which will impact directly the supply chain of German industry in Central Eastern Europe. So we are on the one hand facing this technological change challenge and on the other hand a lack of political dialogue about these uh, sort of pressures on the existing economic model. But what I miss is also another kind of a framework where you could strengthen the sense of togetherness in all this that challenges are similar we are all eu members and there need to be a european solutions on all this that will reflect positions and interests of all countries together and one disappointment that i have is that the, the current political elites in, in in many of these capitals of central eastern europe have not adopted the eu project as their own uh, because of this resentment and populism and so on it has become more popular to stand against or or vis-a-vis -vis European uh, EU project. And I think it's about the new generation of politicians, both in Germany and Central Eastern Europe, to find a different way how to enter into some kind of a regular uh, dialogue and discussion, because it's about organizing this part of Europe uh, in, in 20, 30 years with a common framework. Do you agree, Annabelle? I think that the point Milan makes about the generational change is crucial because Polish politics is still very much dominated by people who were formed during solidarity. So people who were perhaps in their late teens or early 20s, 30s at the time and are now 60 plus and all the key politicians in Poland are of that generation. There are a few younger politicians but their time hasn't really come yet, and it will be interesting to see how the debate shifts as these people move into more senior positions, whether there's more attention to, for example, the EU or climate, that really remains to be seen. So if you're looking to the future, are you hopeful or more pessimistic um, what the future development will bring? It's a big mystery. Mila? I think it will be a mixture of both. Uh, I think we will see increasing uh, diversification of um, paths that leaders will choose for their countries within this region like uh, like in in europe uh, in general and i think also what we're seeing challenges the idea that everything is going to be just linear and unidirectional that poland and the other countries are going to go from being communist countries with single party states to wonderful democracies there has been huge um change over the past 30 years but that doesn't mean that there haven't been hiccups along the way and 
that's kind of how it's how it, how it is. Um, what, what I would also say is that <laughs> to a large extent, this is about whether EU will stay together and about Europe's position in the world. But it means post-Brexit not allowing some countries to fail. It means that institutions then should help to the most vulnerable ones. There are countries also in Southern Europe after the financial crisis that are more vulnerable than others. And they need the EU policy solutions and, I don't know, critical infrastructure investment screening more than Germany or France. But it's in in the long-term interest of Germany and France to lead the EU policy solutions on this. So it seems that the hope for generational change in the East, but also in the West, is, is the common denominator of our discussion here. With that thought, uh, thank you both, Annabel Chapman and Milanich. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks thank for you. having us. In the second part of our podcast, we look at the connection between nationalism and gender. It's exactly the kind of topic that would have fascinated Silke Temple. With her limitless curiosity and dedication, with her moral compass and huge sense of fun, Silke was the driving force behind the creation of the Berlin Policy Journal. Two years ago, Silke, who served as both editor-in-chief of Internationale Politik and Berlin Policy Journal, lost her life in a tragic accident. To honor her memory and legacy, the German chapter of Women in International Security, WISE, joined with Internationale Politik to set up an essay competition for young women under 35. The inaugural winner, announced in September, was Annabel Chapman, who you heard in the interview that starts our show. Here she is reading a passage from her winning essay. You can read it all on our website, berlinpolicyjournal.com. On November 11, 2018, Poland celebrated the centenary of the restoration of its independence. Nationalist groups with anti-immigration slogans marched through the capital, Warsaw, in a centenary rally supported by the Polish government. Red flares blazed above the crowd. Although there were women at the march, its tone and imagery were aggressively male. Poland's celebrations were a nationalist show of force, rather than a celebration of the country's achievements in areas such as education and science. In contrast, Finland had marked the centenary of its independence in 2017 with a new public library. In an article published in The Guardian in 2018, Kasmerder, a Dutch specialist on political extremism in Europe and the US, asked the simple question, why is the far right dominated by men? This domination is visible at nationalist events, from the march in Warsaw to the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville in 2017. In Poland, most of the far-right support comes from men, specifically young men. A recent poll found that almost 30% of Polish men aged 18 to 30 supports the nationalist far-right. This differs markedly from political attitudes of women in the same age group, most of whom support the left or centre. In the European elections in May, the polls revealed similar support patterns for the Confederacja Nationalist Alliance. This is no accident. As the head of a Polish polling firm put it, Confederatius politicians target men who are skeptics of women. Nationalism's allure to men, rather than women, seems to come less from economic problems than from shifting cultural norms. It offers them a sense of belonging in a rapidly changing, globalized world in which they are unsure of their place, as inhabitants of a small town in South Carolina or Saxony, but also as men. In many countries, traditional male roles have declined. 
economically empowered and often better educated, women no longer need a man to live comfortably or even to have a child. This has led to a backlash in which nationalism and masculinity are intertwined. Russia, where traditional male roles crumbled after the collapse of the Soviet Union, has seen the emergence of what writer Natalia Antonova calls the new Russian masculinity in recent years under President Vladimir Putin. Meanwhile, in the US, Germany and Sweden, white nationalist groups have wielded masculinity to recruit members, as American sociologist Michael Kimmel shows in his book Healing from Hate. Annabelle, congratulations on being the inaugural winner of the Zilke Temple Essay Prize. Could you um, tell us what was the original idea for this essay you wrote? Well, when I saw the essay announcement, I started gathering my thoughts together on nationalism, thinking about some of the areas that I could explore. And I had a big paragraph on nationalism and gender, and it got longer and longer. And in the end, I decided that should really be the whole essay because I found that it was such an important topic that hadn't really been explored before. You work out of Warsaw um, in Poland. Is this particular to your essay or is, is observations you have made in town or, or observing Polish politics in particular? Is this something which, which gave you the idea as well? Absolutely. Many of the ideas that I write about in the essay are ones that came to me just in my daily work reporting from from Poland over the past few years. For example, I talk about the nationalist march on November 11th last year, in which there were red flares, people marching, and there were also women there, but it struck me how aggressively male the whole atmosphere was there. Thinking about gender and nationalism, we of course have seen a resurgence of nationalism in Europe, but all over the world, really. If we really simplify the sort of main, main message of your essay, would you say, We are observing this because there's a crisis in the male self-image. I think it really varies between countries. The experience of Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union, for example, on the one hand, and on the other hand, a country like the United States or Germany, it's a different situation. But it really can be said that men in many countries are seeking a sense of belonging and something that's bigger than themselves. And in these cases, it's nationalism. Right. And what are your remedies? How would you recommend to address this this problem? As I write, I think it's more complicated than just rebutting these ideas on Twitter. This needs to be addressed at many levels, from the European level to the national level and down to the local level. And the first thing I would um, suggest is protecting women's rights against some of these more male-centric nationalist policies in which women are treated as a sort of vessel for perpetuating the nation through childbirth. And then further policies are needed to um, address the source of the problem, because it's it's easy to say that these people are deluded or something, but many of their fears are rooted in reality and need to be addressed by policymakers in various countries. Okay, thank you very much. <laughs> and that's all for the first episode of the Berlin Policy Journal podcast. Thanks to my editorial colleagues Siobhan Dowling and Noah Gordon and to our producer Susan Stone. We'll be back in mid-November and we'll be focusing on European foreign policy. Determined Spaniard Joseph Borrell is taking over as Europe's chief diplomat and Commission President Ursula von der Leyen is promising a geopolitical EU. Will that mean that Europe will finally stop punching below its weight in world affairs? Until then, goodbye. Thanks for listening.